Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 30 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 4, Episodes 27, 28 and 29 for Parts 1, 2 and 3 of this four-part case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Jury selection for the trial of the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway began during the third week of October 2018. Brian Altman QC acted on behalf of the Crown, and Joel Benathan QC was counsel for the defence. The six men and six women of the jury were told Russell Bishop's acquittal of murdering Nicola and Karen was quashed by the High Court of Appeal after new evidence was brought to light through DNA testing. Russell Bishop arrived in a prison van for the start of the second trial he's faced accused of murdering two schoolgirls 32 years ago. The 52-year-old has pleaded not guilty to the charges. Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows were nine years old when they were sexually assaulted and strangled to death in woods on the outskirts of Brighton in October 1986. They were near neighbours and had gone out to play after school. The jury heard both girls were afraid of the dark. Their bodies were found the next day, half a mile away. The discovery led to the largest and longest running inquiry Sussex police have ever known. 
Prosecutor Brian Altman QC addressed the court. He said, The killings were entirely intentional and they were carried out in the woods by a man who sexually assaulted them for his own gratification. That man, say the prosecution, was this defendant, Russell Bishop. The jury were informed that the evidence they were going to be shown was upsetting, but necessary, proving that Russell Bishop was responsible for the murders of Nicola and Karen. Altman told jurors of Bishop's previous crimes and explained although there were similarities, this was not merely the reason for his prosecution in this case. Altman told the court that Bishop was aware that he could be forensically linked to the crimes so had a bath and washed his clothing after the murders in 1986. Bishop also washed his car after the 1990 abduction of the seven-year-old girl. The prosecutor went on to say, Let me make this clear. The prosecution does not seek guilty verdicts on the murders of Nicola Fallows and Karen Hadaway by saying that because the defendant was guilty of a very similar attack on another young girl in 1990, He must necessarily be guilty of these murders. What we do say is that there is other compelling evidence that this man was the killer of those two girls, and the evidence of his guilt of the other attack and the facts underlying it help identify him as the killer, as well as reveal his disposition to behave in a certain way, which is happily both very rare and exceptional. As the opening remarks were given to the court, describing the lives of two young girls who would now be in their early forties, Russell Bishop sat writing notes. Observed from a public gallery full to the brim with the victim's family members and a large number of journalists, as the case had garnered national news coverage once again. The jury were told that while they would be shown maps where the crimes took place, They would also be visiting the area where the girls were found, along with landmarks which were essential to the case. Brian Altman QC went on to stress that due to the significant passing of time, it was likely that witnesses might not be able to provide an exact minute of the day when something had occurred, as quote, Rarely do people look at their watches if they are wearing them, and time and event they did not realise might assume importance later. Of course, a witness may be entirely accurate about a time, but they may not be. The prosecutor asked the jury that they allow reasonable allowances for this along with the fact that when testimony was given in court, it may not be as fresh as when a statement was provided shortly after the crimes. The jury were told, quote, While the prosecution has no obligation in murder to prove the motive for any killing, The killing of these two girls clearly has the most obvious motive. Plainly the main, if not the only motive here, was sexual and paedophilic. The events of October 1986 were relayed to the court. A sighting of Russell Bishop was made by Dorinda Burtonshaw as Bishop walked along the central reservation of Coldeen Lane towards a subway under Lewis Road on October 9th, 1986. 
This was approximately 5pm, 15 minutes before the two young girls were spotted by a park keeper. The witness even commented to the driver of the car she was travelling in, Look, there's Russell. Bishop was wearing a blue top, similar in style to that of the blue pinto top, and it was being alleged had forensic links to the crimes. Bishop reached Wild Park and spoke to parkkeeper Roy Dadswell, who just so happened to have been talking to Nicola and Karen. Bishop told Roy his car, a red Ford Escort, had broken down. The pair spoke briefly, although the parkkeeper could not recall what Bishop was wearing. Bishop left and headed towards the A270 Lewis Road, towards the direction of his home. Bishop was seen again by brothers Mark and Kevin Doyle. The sightings were coincidental, as Mark was being driven home from work when he saw Bishop travelling close to a railway viaduct past a police phone box. Mark's brother Kevin was on foot and saw Bishop coming out of what was described as a, quote, path running along the back of Wild Park that came out between the police box and the public toilets that were there at the time and out onto the west pavement of Lewis Road, close to the railway viaduct that runs over Lewis Road. At the time, Bishop raised a hand in acknowledgement. If correct, these sightings were said to have occurred around 6.30pm. This would mean if Russell Bishop were responsible for the murders, he would have to have turned around and returned to Wild Park, as further witness sightings confirmed that the girls were alive at this point. A short while later, along with her husband, Beatrice Cooper, who lived at a property on Park Close, which borders Wild Park, was in her garden. As the couple did some gardening, they heard the sound of a girl crying, coming from the area where the children would be found the next day. Although prolonged, the cry sounded like a child that was being disciplined before the sound suddenly stopped. This was sometime after 6.30pm, but before 7pm. An account of Russell Bishop's behaviour at the time of the murders was detailed to the court. During the evening of Friday, October 10th, the day the girls were discovered, Bishop spotted a neighbour, Jeffrey Caswell, and told him that he was part of the search party that had found the children. Bishop regaled his neighbour with tales of how it was his dog Misty that tracked down the scent of the girls after he had been given a coat from Michelle. Karen's mother. Bishop said the girls did not appear to be injured, with one lying across the other. Bishop claimed that it was him who felt for a pulse. The defendant's claim was then followed by a conversation with Michael Evans, who had worked with Bishop spraying cars. He told Evans that one of the girls was lying atop the other and one had blood coming from her mouth. This claim had been repeated by Bishop to officers during a police interview. Brian Altman QC said, The prosecution suggests that the only way the defendant could have known the detail of the girls' positions in relation to each other 
was not because he saw it at the time of finding, but quite simply because that is how he left them having killed them. Russell Bishop's connection to spraying cars would also be the tether through which he was forensically linked to the Pinto sweatshirt, which in turn had been in contact with the two girls. In August 1986, a few months before the murders, Bishop's neighbour Geoffrey Caswell wanted to change the colour of a mini he had recently purchased for his daughter. Bishop explained that he was experienced in that line of work, so he could do it for him. Caswell knew Bishop. The two were not just neighbours but friends as well, often going fishing together. Caswell purchased the paint, one can of damask red, along with a can of Venetian red. Geoffrey Caswell gave the Venetian red paint to Bishop because he knew it to be a similar colour to the one the defendant had used to spray his Ford Escort. Along with Michael Evans, whom Bishop would speak to around two months later about discovering the girls, the pair sprayed both the mini that belonged to Geoffrey Caswell and Bishop's Ford Escort in the same paint. Paint would cover their clothing, including a pair of trousers that the defendant's partner Jenny Johnson handed to police at the end of October 1986. When Bishop was questioned, he was asked what sort of paint had been used to spray his car, and he told officers they had used ordinary household paint mixed with thinners. This was not true. Though Bishop had sold his car for scrap on October 25th, police managed to recover the front wing, the bonnet and the radiator grill. Michael Evans, who sprayed the vehicles with Bishop, was asked what the defendant was wearing while they were working. He described a blue sweatshirt with a name in white on one side of the chest. This matched the description of the Pinto sweatshirt. Evans was later shown the top flecked with red paint across the front and sleeve and agreed that the paint was comparable to the colour they had used. The sweatshirt was similar to articles of clothing Evans had seen the defendant wear. While a great deal of time had passed, both Michelle, Karen's mother, and Susan, Nicola's mother, recalled the defendant wearing a similar blue top, flecked with red paint. While the witness evidence was compelling, the prosecution had a considerable amount of forensic evidence which linked Bishop and his home environment to the sweatshirt and in turn to the young girls. The clothing taken into evidence included the Pinto sweatshirt and a pair of Bishop's trousers given to police by Jenny Johnson, both of which were flecked with red paint and a hair from Bishop's head. Police also obtained a top from his teenage girlfriend at the time, Marion Stevenson. Intimate samples were taken from the victims, along with forensic evidence from their clothing which included Karen's underwear and jumper, which she was not wearing but were found close by. Forensic material was obtained through the use of scientific tape. There was a transfer of evidence. Eleven fibres from the Pinto sweatshirt were found on Karen's jumper, 
and a corresponding fibre was found on the Pinto sweatshirt. Nine fibres from the Pinto sweatshirt were found on Nicola's jumper. This linked the sweatshirt to the clothing the two girls were wearing. Ivy from the scene was also found on the sweatshirt, which could only have been transferred if the person that wore the clothing was pushing through swathes of plants, rather than passing by. Also, there were eight hairs found on the top. The problem in the past was they could not conclusively link the sweatshirt to Russell Bishop. However, with the leaps in forensic testing, they could now say those hairs were microscopically similar to Russell Bishop's hair. Furthermore, testing on the paint type found on the jumper matched the same colour Bishop had sprayed his Ford car. On top of that, fibres from his home address linked the sweatshirt to his bedroom on Stevens Road. These included almost a dozen fibres from socks at the property, 26 fibres from another jumper, and several fibres from a skirt that Marion Stevenson owned. During the mid-2000s, mitochondrial testing was carried out on a pubic hair found on the pinto top. It was concluded that there was, quote, moderate support to say that the hair belonged to Bishop or someone related to him. Finally, it was the tapings from Karen Hadaway's left forearm and the pinto sweatshirt which had been previously unexamined, remaining sealed since 1986, that proved the most damaging to Bishop's case. Forensic scientist Roy Green completed analysis on the results from Karen's left forearm. Fourteen areas were tested from a taping taken at the time of Karen's post-mortem. It highlighted three profiles, one of which was Karen. After completing a statistical analysis... Roy Green came to the conclusion that it was one billion times more likely that the DNA profile of Russell Bishop or someone related to him was found among the combined profiles, rather than Karen and two other individuals. It was believed skin flakes were present, which was unusual, as experts would expect the material to remain there for only a few hours following contact. This proves that Bishop had touched Karen around the time of her death. Bishop's DNA was also found on the outside of the Pinto sweatshirt. DNA from Robert Gander was also found. He was the engineer from the Southeastern Electricity Board who picked up the top and reported its discovery to the police. This only added further credence to the accuracy of the test. Roy Green said, the presence of matching fibres, paint and hairs together with the DNA and mitochondrial DNA results provide extremely strong support for the assertion that the Pinto sweatshirt had been worn by Bishop. The evidence was presented along with the details of Bishop's previous conviction for attempted murder, abduction and sexual assault, with comparisons made to the time in which the attacks took place it being dusk, the victims being strangled by hand, and they were all prepubescent left in densely wooded areas, with clothing disregarded near the scene. 
Rosalind Hammond, a senior scientific advisor with Eurofins Forensic Services, the company who carried out the forensic testing, was asked about the possibility of cross-contamination through invertent transfer. She would tell the court there was, quote, no possibility that the evidence found arose through inadvertent transfer or the probability that it occurred in that way was so small that it could be effectively discounted as a realistic possibility. On the third day of the trial, along with the judge, prosecution and defence, the jury were taken 50 miles by coach to Brighton to view the scene and path it was believed the girls had travelled. The police escort ensured that no members of the public made any advances. When they arrived behind the pavilion, the prosecutor pointed to the spot which at the time would have appeared to be a den, hollowed out and surrounded by branches, only accessible by crawling through bracken and ivy plants. This is the pavilion which was here as you saw in 1986, Brian Altman QC said. Behind the pavilion is the grass bank, now overgrown, and the steep slope bank leading into the woods. And it was above this spot that the girls were found. The jury passed the site where a bench had been placed as a memorial. When the jury and legal teams arrived back at the court, Brian Altman QC ended his statement by saying, How else and when else did this man's DNA come to be deposited on Karen's exposed left forearm, if not after her top had been removed and during and for the purpose of these sexually motivated killings, only to be found crumpled on the ground by Nicola's left hand, together with her knickers? Of course, that is still not all the evidence there is pointing the finger of guilt firmly in this man's direction. There is other circumstantial evidence implicating him in these murders. His conduct at the time of the murders and the sightings of him in the area of Wild Park at the time. There is the detailed description of the position and appearance of the bodies he gave police and others, information that could have only have come from the killer. There are contradictions in the accounts he provided to others and to the police, and the admitted lies he told, and there is the fact that the Pinto sweatshirt just so happened to be found discarded along the defendant's route home, from Wild Park. It is, say the prosecution, the overwhelmingly compelling and powerful nature of all the evidence in this case that can make you sure of this defendant's guilt of these murders. The defence set out to address the planks of the prosecution's case. These included the forensic evidence linking Bishop to the victims, statements made by Bishop to the police, and Bishop's conviction for a similar offence. Joel Nathan QC told the jury to be mindful when considering the forensic evidence. How can we be sure the same precautions taken today were carried out then, he would say. Also, while Bishop was convicted of a similar offence, there were some differences. And finally, Benathan told the jury the defence were allowed to point to another suspect, 
The defence alleged this person had no alibi and was someone the girls trusted. But Nathan said, These facts, when looked at coolly and calmly, should lead you to have to accept that the police and prosecution have spent 32 years building a case against the wrong man. Is there another suspect you need to keep an eye on in this case? Only one person is on trial here sitting in the dock, Russell Bishop, but the law allows a defendant like him to point out facts and ask questions to the jury that might suggest the possibility that another person exists who may have carried out these awful attacks. We will ask questions of witnesses to show that when the girls went missing, there was someone very close to them who has no alibi. That someone has a guilty secret. That he has been complicit in the sexual abuse of Nicola Fellows, which shows an interest in paedophilic sex. In the end, it might mean he could not let Nicola Fellows tell the world what has been happening. That person is her father. Barry Fellows. The first witness to take the stand was Michelle Johnson, Karen Hadaway's mother. She described her daughter being friendly with 16-year-old Marion Stevenson, who Russell Bishop was sleeping with despite him already being in a relationship with the mother of his children, Jenny Johnson. This caused some friction in the community. Michelle recounted the sequence of events when along with Marion and one of her friends, Bishop arrived at the fellow's home looking for their lodger, Dougie Judd. Nicola answered the door. Upon learning that Dougie Judd wasn't at the property, the three left although Nicola shouted at Marion through the letterbox. Michelle Johnson tearfully recalled the search for her daughter. Under cross-examination, she was asked about a letter she had written to a local councillor. Barry Fellows, Nicola's father, had apparently told Michelle that Karen was lucky she had not been beaten and she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Michelle wrote to the councillor, I'm afraid that Barry Fellow's strange and unnatural behaviour since my daughter was murdered has not got any better. In court, Michelle agreed this was something she raised with the counsellor, but also said there did seem to be a vendetta against Barry Fellow's by locals. Next to give evidence was Susan Eisman, Nicola Fellow's mother. She recounted the search and Nicola's dislike for Russell Bishop's teenage girlfriend Marion, which had led to Bishop being banned from entering both the Fellows and Hadaway household. Susan was pressed on the type of person her ex-husband Barry was. Joel Benathan QC brought up an incident where Barry had struck Susan's grandmother and broke her nose, although he was never charged. Susan agreed this was a serious incident, though her then-husband claimed it was an accident. Defence counsel then asked Susan if Barry ever struck their daughter. She agreed that he had, but said that only if she was, quote, out of control. Also, Benathan mentioned the local rumour that a pornographic film had been made by Barry Fellows of his daughter. The rumour came from Marion Stevenson, 
Russell Bishop's girlfriend at the time the murders occurred. I first heard of an allegation made by Marion of Nicola being in a pornographic film in 1986, Susan said. I heard the allegation through speaking to people in the area and also through my police liaison officer. She also agreed that she did not know for sure where her then-husband was on the night the girls went missing. Susan had been told by their lodger Dougie Judd that Barry had been at Teresa Judd's property on Mallscombe Way. Teresa was Dougie Judd's sister-in-law. Prosecutor Brian Altman QC had addressed the rumours of the video recording of Nicola, telling the jury... In the course of this trial, certain allegations are going to be made that Barry Fellows, Nicola's father, was observed two to three months before Nicola's death watching a video in his front room of his own daughter engaged in sexual activities with the lodger who lived at the address at the time. The lodger in question was Dougie Judd. While these were severe allegations... A pathologist had carried out a post-mortem and could find no physical evidence to support the claim that Nicola had been raped. Testimony was then given by Kevin Rowland, who was 18 years old when he found the girls close to an area known locally as Jacob's Ladder. Much like the first trial, he confirmed that Russell Bishop did not go anywhere near the bodies and could not have seen how they were positioned before PC Smith checked for a pulse and radioed in the discovery. Dr Anthony Peabody, who was the forensic scientist during the original investigation, explained to the jury how he collected evidence. Joel Benath and QC used both an academic paper the scientist had written and Peabody's own testimony to try and poke holes in how the evidence was handled. Dr Peabody was shocked when Defence Counsel Benathan suggested that the scientific tape used was contaminated by matter that had stuck to the exposed site. Also, a piece of white cardboard had been packaged with the sweatshirt when it had arrived at the laboratory to be tested on October 31st, 1986. However, Peabody never made mention of the cardboard in his notes. It was highlighted that Peabody had missed a white fibre found on the sweatshirt, which looked like it could have matched that of a police suit. Could this point to a possible sign of contamination? Peabody felt the fibre was not from a police suit and did not require further examination. The forensic scientist would describe his findings as, quote, strong evidence to indicate the Pinto sweatshirt had been in contact with the clothing of the two dead girls. Joel Benathan QC asked the expert witness if he had been assaulted by a police officer after giving evidence in the first trial. Dr Peabody said yes. When he left the court, he was pinned against the wall by a senior police officer who had been working the case. The officer was unhappy with the evidence given, though Peabody remarked that emotions were running high throughout the original trial. As the retrial entered its fifth week, 
Barry Fellows took the stand. Barry told the court he advised police around the time of the girl's disappearance to check in Wild Park, as it was Nicola's favourite spot despite the fact he had warned her not to go there after dark. On the day in question, he was cleaning and gardening at a property in Hove before returning home on the bus, picking up some meat from the butchers. Along with Dougie Judd, the pair went to visit Dougie's sister-in-law nearby. Teresa Judd would later testify to that effect, although not without being accused by the defence counsel of providing a false alibi for Barry Fellows. Barry spoke of having to identify his daughter. He said, I walked in there, and there was a sheet over my little girl up to the neck. Barry asked the attendant if he could put a 50 pence piece in Nicola's hand, so she had her pocket money. Asked about striking his grandmother-in-law, he said he did not hit her on purpose. He just swung around accidentally. This was precisely why police did not take any further action. Priming the witness for what was about to come next, Brian Altman QC told Barry, What is being suggested? You are being accused of having killed Nicola. You are being accused of having killed Karen. You are being accused of having sexually abused your own daughter and Karen in that den and having punched Nicola in the face. Do you understand that? Barry Fellows said he did. Barry's time on the stand was not easy, as he often broke down as question after question came, insinuating that he watched a video of his daughter Nicola being raped and then murdered her along with her friend Karen. Under cross-examination, Joel Benathan QC's questions were relentless. Quote, Were you party to Nicola being filmed in a pornographic video, Mr. Fellows? Were you and another man watching a homemade pornographic film of your own infant daughter? Did you have anything to do with her death? Did you go to Wild Park before you got home at 7.30pm? Barry Fellows denied every allegation. The question surrounding the pornographic video continued, and when Dougie Judd, the fellow's former lodger, took the stand, he too was asked about his involvement in the video by the defence counsel. Along with Barry Fellows, he had been arrested by police in 2009, though no charges were ever laid against them. Did you get mixed up with Barry Fellows in a bad way? Did you get mixed up with Barry Fellows and paedophilia? Asked Joel Bonathan QC. Dougie Judd denied he did. But Bonathan continued. It is not just you getting mixed up with Barry Fellows in a bad way and paedophilia. It's not just an allegation of improper relations with Nicola. The allegation is you were in a video with Nicola either completely naked or semi-naked having sex with Nicola. Is there any truth in it? Dougie Judd replied, There is no truth in it whatsoever. Total lies.
in testimony that would be given the following week from behind a screen. Marion Stevenson addressed the court. Now 48, Marion was Russell Bishop's girlfriend when she was 16. She spoke of how Russell Bishop could do no wrong in her eyes. She was besotted. She would say, He was my first love. She was asked to confirm if the statements she had given on October 31st, 1986 were true. She agreed it was. It detailed the conversation she had with Russell Bishop a day after the girls' bodies had been found. Marion claimed Bishop said, quote, They deserved it, and I blame the parents for allowing them out at night. Marion told the court, He asked me to make love, but I wasn't interested, because I was upset about the murders. Russell was unhappy and said I wouldn't see him for much longer because he was going to be put down for the murders. He said, You think I've done it, don't you? I told him not to be silly. The witness testified that a detective had asked her to gain Bishop's confidence. Marion went on to say, They believed he would confess to someone he was close to. The detective said if anything happened they would be there straight away. By that I gathered they would be listening in. At the same time they said Russell Bishop's place was bugged. Jurors were informed that Marion would often hang around Dougie Judd's room in the fellow's home. She described Dougie Judd as like a brother. Marion testified that a few months before the murders, while in the company of Dougie, his brother and Russell Bishop, the group were drinking and taking drugs upstairs at the fellow's home. Marion was thirsty and needed some water so went to the kitchen to get a drink. After passing through the front room behind the sofa, she noticed Nicola's father watching something on television. She said she paused and recognised what she heard to be noises coming from the TV set that were sexual in nature. Marion testified that she remained unseen for several minutes, unnoticed by Nicola's father and another man. Describing what she saw, Marion said, Nicky was on Dougie's bed with him. Dougie touched her and got on top of her and was having sex. They were both undressed. Marion said she left the fellow's home almost straight away, telling the gathering that she felt sick. Marion told the court she was in no doubt it was Nicola. She reported the incident in 1988, two years after the murders. While giving evidence, the subject of the News of the World came up. Marion Stevenson had given an interview with a journalist from the newspaper. The article included information that police had bugged Bishop's home and Nicola had been raped. That incident had been recorded on film, so Marion claimed. Under cross-examination by prosecutor Brian Altman QC, Marion was asked why she did not report this incident to the police in the nine previous interviews she gave, rather than going to the newspapers which could have affected the outcome of the trial. She replied, I was young. I was scared. 
two little girls I knew were murdered. My world was not like that. The prosecutor asked, You must have thought to yourself that this little girl I'm fond of is in danger of being sexually abused by a man who lives in the same house as her, Dougie Judd. Yeah, but I was scared. I was young myself, Marion replied. Maybe if I had, they might be alive. Brian Altman QC asked Marion Stevenson why the statements she provided over the years differed so much when she was interviewed after the murders up until a reinvestigation in the 2000s. Marion said, I have explained that in 1988 I was heavily smoking pot, and so my memory was not as clear as it was in 2007 when I was not smoking it. As the years went on, things have got a lot clearer to me. It was argued that Marion Stevenson's account of walking behind the two men, allegedly watching a video of Nicola, could not be accurate as the sofa they would have been sat on was up against the wall in the living room. Becoming increasingly more upset, Marion told jurors she was instructed to go to the papers by Bishop's mother Sylvia, whom she described as domineering. Marion said, They all used me. Everyone used me. Russell's family, the police, everyone. On the subject of the interview with the News of the World, Marion said she did not know what she was saying, as the reporter had given her champagne. The prosecution had argued to disallow Marion Stevenson's testimony, as it could not be backed up, either by a copy of the tape or any physical evidence following Nicholas post-mortem. But the judge allowed the evidence, telling Joel Bernathan QC, as the witness testimony alleged Barry Fellows was, quote, guilty of the gravest crime in the calendar, the defence must back it up with evidence. It appeared as though they could not. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. As the proceedings moved away from the defence's claims, the jury were told about letters written by Russell Bishop to a 13-year-old girl while he was in prison. From the dock, Bishop shouted, It's not agreed evidence. Stop it right now. I'm not having this shit or I'm having a retrial. After a brief pause, Brian Altman QC read from a letter Bishop had written to the daughter of one of his partner's friends. The defendant had asked if the girl was still a virgin, or a V, as he put it. Bishop wrote, I know how old you are, baby. He, he. Sixteen or seventeen more weeks, and I will be out up to no good again. In the correspondence which was full of requests to keep their relationship secret, asking that the girl go on the pill, Bishop wrote, Don't give this letter to no one, not to your mum, not to anyone. You will have to go on the pill. You will have to get rid of this page now, so no one will know. In further correspondence, Bishop wrote, I just hope you can handle it because I'm a man, not a boy. I know you've been looking for it for a long time from me. Bishop told the 13-year-old that he could not send her any, quote, dirty rhymes, but she could send some, as prison officials wouldn't stop any explicit material being sent to him. Russell Bishop would take the stand in his own defence. He told the court he was deeply ashamed of his actions when he abducted, sexually assaulted and attempted to murder a seven-year-old girl in 1990. Bishop told the jury he was in a, quote, bad state following the failed prosecution. According to Bishop, on the day he abducted the seven-year-old, he was fixing the brake pipes on his car. He claimed they had been cut eight or nine times since the court case, and in his frustrations, going mad, screaming and shouting, he attacked the girl. Bishop said he, quote, 
might as well do what he had been accused of, but he was in no way involved in the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway. He spoke of his movements on the day of the murders and how he offered to help with the search party the following day. Bishop tried to explain the reasoning behind why he told an officer during the search. He was worried that he might get arrested in connection with the murders. There was a few things that led to that kind of thinking, Bishop told the jury. A couple of years before this, I was wrongly arrested for the Grand Hotel bombing in Brighton. Also, Bishop's father was arrested in connection to the murder of a local woman, Margaret Frame. She was stripped naked and buried in a shallow grave in Stamner Woods. Bishop's father was released and was not charged for the crime. On the subject of Bishop's changing narrative surrounding the discovery of the two girls, he said, I was just telling them what they wanted to hear. It was obvious they were not going to believe me over what those two boys were saying. I was being called a liar. They had been downright nasty. I was being kept a prisoner. I was having two police officers bullying and totally destroying me in that room. I'm dyslexic and could not read or write. I had poor problem-solving skills. It was the only way I was going to get out of there. After his acquittal for the murders, following the failed prosecution, Russell Bishop claimed he was targeted. There was never a day something did not happen, he said. The car got taken from outside the house and set on fire. My home was firebombed on several occasions. Petrol thrown through the letterbox, people trying to kill me and my children. Bishop said things got so bad, he was going to kill himself. Quote, I drove to Beachy Head. I had my children with me, ending my life and my children's life. I just could not bear it all. My son said something in the car which made me rethink and drive away. I went to the beach to clear my head, went for a walk with the children, It's hard to put into words. Symptoms of mental illness. There was no sleeping. There was no resting. I was living in fear. Under cross-examination, Brian Altman QC asked the defendant if the abduction of the seven-year-old girl was revenge. Partly, Bishop said. So the attempted murder of the girl was born out of revenge by virtue of the three years of the hate you and your family suffered. You are portraying yourself as a victim, Altman said. This offence was all about sexual gratification, and you are a paedophile. You enjoy controlling children, and one aspect of your control of children, particularly girls, is sexual gratification. This was denied by Bishop and the exchange became heated. Why did you choose a young girl who was two years younger than the age of the two girls you were accused of murdering? It could have been anyone, Bishop said, though the psychological trauma of the hate campaign and what everyone else was saying, it came out in that behaviour. I was bloody angry at everyone, at her and everyone who had done that to me. The prosecutor replied, This offence was all about sexual gratification. 
You are a paedophile, are you not? Bishop replied, You have to understand what the word paedophile means. You enjoy controlling children, and one aspect of that is sexual gratification, Altman said. Bishop responded, No, not in any way, shape or form. Brian Altman QC firmly remarked to the court, This is all rubbish. This is all lies. You attacked that young girl because you had a sexual interest in children. It had nothing to do with three years of hate, but everything to do with Russell Bishop and your character, didn't it? There are very good reasons for what I also suggest are obvious and striking similarities between the two offences because the killer of those two girls in October 1986 was the same person who attacked the seven-year-old in 1990. And that man is you. Defence counsel Joel Benathan QC had previously proposed to the jury that Bishop may well have touched Karen when the bodies of the girls were found. Quote, Did Russell Bishop touch the bodies of the girls when they were discovered on October 10th? Because if he did take their pulses, then there is an obvious simple explanation for why he knew what they look like and the DNA. Now from the stand, Bishop was saying he did. I went straight to the victims and felt for a pulse, he said. On Nicola, I felt for a pulse on her neck and on Karen on her right arm. At school, a young lad had died suddenly when I was 13 or 14, and we were told about taking a pulse in first aid. But Bishop had said quite the opposite when he was questioned in 2016. You've been arrested at 9.44 this morning for the murders of Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows. In terms of murder, what is your understanding of that? Before we get into anything like that, and on Mr Bishop's behalf, there are some prepared statements to read out. I completely and utterly deny any involvement in the deaths of Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows. I was tried for these offences in 1987 and found not guilty by a jury after only two hours deliberation. Um, as I said, I'm putting the technical side of this to one side, okay? And you've told us that, refer back to what was said before, okay? But we're asking you now, that's not clear to us, okay? Right now, what, where your position stands on touching Karen's forum. I didn't touch no one, so I'm innocent, and as I said, I've got no comment to make. But that's what I'm asking you. You've said you didn't touch her. Well, you've got my answer, so write it down and then move on, please. No, that's fine. I just want to be clear. You're saying you didn't touch Karen yeah. Listen, I've got no comment to make, right? Everything that's been said has been said. I've got nothing else to add. Please, just ask questions, let me answer it, whether it's no comment, whatever, and move on. I'm not going to sit here like I did 13 years ago and go over and over and over around in circles. Not happening. Please, crack on with your questions. The subject of the letters written to a 13-year-old was again brought up, and Russell Bishop became increasingly agitated, appealing to the judge that surely this was illegal. Mr Justice Sweeney told him it was not. 
After a break for lunch, Russell Bishop did not return to the witness box. The judge told the jury, You will observe immediately, of course, Mr. Bishop is in the dock, not the witness box. That is because he has declined to give any further evidence. As you have gathered, I have given him time to consider that, but that is ultimately his position. I will give you directions in due course as to how you should approach that. The practical effect of that is he can be asked no more questions in cross-examination, and his evidence to you is at an end. Bishop's defence counsel had told the judge his client could not testify. Bishop had also said he could not survive any longer at Belmarsh Prison, where he was being held in custody while court proceedings were underway. As the trial reached its conclusion at the start of December 2018, Russell Bishop refused to attend the final arguments. His counsel, Joel Benathan QC, argued that the jury should question the evidence. Was it contaminated? They should also put aside Bishop's previous conviction. He said, You don't do what happened to that little girl in 1990 and pop up in a trial and expect a fair trial. Once you know what happened in 1990, that will do. That's enough. Don't worry about the rest. Ladies and gentlemen, we say no. Addressing the culmination of evidence the prosecution had presented, Benathan said, You have to look at it all together. You have to be sure. Some of the planks of the prosecution's case were mouldy, and you might not be sure how safe the bridge was. Don't cross the bridge unless you are sure, Benathan said. Even if the tour guide Mr. Altman assures you that you can ignore the faulty planks. Brian Altman QC prosecuting told jurors in his closing speech, quote, In this case, as you have witnessed yourself, the defendant chose to give evidence, but within a relatively short time of my beginning my cross-examination of him, he refused to return after the mid-morning break. During that time, you may conclude he showed you his true colours, an abusive, aggressive, controlling man. He is a coward to refuse to continue his evidence before you, and he is a cowardly paedophile who thinks nothing of attacking a seven-year-old child, and on the evidence we suggest, killing two nine-year-old girls purely for his own sexual gratification. Altman went on to say that the defence could not explain away the multiple scientific findings presented by the prosecution, choosing instead to target one of the victim's fathers. Quote, What you have seen unfolding before your eyes is the creation of a smokescreen in the hope he gets away with murder for the second time. This defendant walked these two girls to their deaths. We ask you to put right a 32-year-old injustice by returning verdicts of guilty. On Monday, December 10th, 2018, jurors at the Old Bailey were sent out to consider their verdicts. After two and a half hours, they returned. A single cry of yes came from the public gallery, followed by the sound of crying as the jury foreman announced the verdicts to a packed Old Bailey courtroom. In 1987, 
Russell Bishop was cleared of murdering Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway. But on December 10th, exactly 31 years to the day, Bishop was found guilty of murdering Nicola and Karen. The families of the victims would finally see justice. The judge said he offered a, quote, heartfelt tribute to the two families for the extraordinarily dignified way they have conducted themselves throughout these traumatic proceedings, often in the face of circumstances which would have reduced others to behaviour they once never showed. If I may say so, they have the court's complete admiration and thanks for the way they have conducted themselves. Outside the Old Bailey, Michelle Karen's mother said, After 32 years of fighting, we finally have justice for Karen and Nicola. What people like Bishop inflict on the families of their victims is a living death. Bishop doesn't deserve to breathe the same clean air as we do. After all, he decided that day to strangle the life out of our two angels. What makes a man want to squeeze the life out of two innocent children with his bare hands? Unbelievable, when he had a child himself and another on the way. He's a coward without a conscience. I don't believe you can rehabilitate evil. I think Bishop was just born that way. People talk to me of forgiveness, but I can never forgive or forget what that evil monster did to my beautiful cousin Nicky. I'm trying so hard to get my head around this but I will because I'm a fighter and I'll never stop being strong for my family. Nigel Pilkington of the Crown Prosecution Service South East described Russell Bishop as a, quote, violent predatory paedophile, and he gets cross when you call him that. He also considers himself to be a victim in the sense of the 1990 conviction. There is not a shred of evidence against Barry Fellows, not realistically at all. It remains a rare event to overturn a murder acquittal and we were able to provide to the Court of Appeal and to the jury new and compelling evidence that Russell Bishop was responsible for these murders because of new DNA techniques that had been established in the intervening years. Apart from that, he'd also lied on a number of occasions at the scene and he provided details that only the killer could or might have known. That led to uh, an overwhelming case, we say. In a subsequent interview, Nigel Pilkington would go on to describe the problems with the prosecution back in 1987. So the DNA transforms the evidence in this case. Whatever you say about what happened in 1987, the case was a circumstantial case. It was relying on people saying he was wearing a blue top and he was here or there. Well, there was bits of science, but we had Jennifer Johnson in 1987, his partner, who told us that's his top. But when she went into the witness box, she changed the story entirely, said it wasn't. And so our whole case was a very great difficulty for our whole case. I wasn't there in 87, but I can see, because I've seen all the evidence, that it's a mainly circumstantial civilian type case. And it looked a pretty difficult case for me to win in 1987. Nobody can say whether he would have won it, if he'd done something different, or the evidence had come out differently. Certainly, if she had not changed her story, it might have been a wholly different thing or result. 
On the issue of the time, the time is always very interesting because I've done a lot of these cases and I think what we learn about time over the years and some of these cold cases is that lots of people are doing their best on the time. But for some people, it's their incompetent best. That's not being overly critical, but they're doing their best, they're trying. And what we realise is it's never a good idea to pin yourself to time. If you ask me when Nick and Karen died, I couldn't tell you. But this is really important. I don't have to prove when they died. I only have to prove that they were killed unlawfully by Russell Bishop. And so we think... Barry Fellows was interviewed. He spoke about the accusations against him, his time in the witness box, and his daughter, Nicola. It's the worst thing that can ever happen to anyone. You sit there, or you stand there, and you take so much crap off of one person through his, through his barrister. You know, it wasn't the barrister saying it to me, it was him. And if that's the best he can do, he had no evidence, none whatsoever. Angry, very angry. Barry Fellows later told the camera crew, Why me? What have I done? All I have done is lost my little girl. He spoke of how his daughter looked after him after an epileptic attack. Whenever I woke up, she was there, my little nursemaid. That's how I remember her. She was, there she was dotty over me and I was dotty over her. I think that sums it up. Sussex police did not rule out the possibility of perjury charges, as Jenny Johnson had lied after she changed her mind when she took the stand at the original trial. Detective Superintendent Jeff Riley, who in 2013 had been appointed as the senior investigating officer into the murders, gave a statement. Russell Bishop is a truly wicked man and has rightly now been convicted of these dreadful crimes. This has been one of the most high-profile and complex murder investigations in the history of Sussex Police. The case still impacts on the community in Brighton and of course has forever altered the lives of the families of the two girls and in particular their parents, Michelle, Susan and Barry. Sadly, Karen's father Lee passed away in 1998 and never saw justice for his daughter. This has been delivered today. Former Detective Inspector Malcolm Bacon, who gave evidence at the trial, told a BBC reporter about Bishop who had campaigned after his acquittal, fighting for justice as police sought the killer. Malcolm Bacon said, he was walking around fronting marches, trying to find out who the real person was who had killed the girls. It was pretty obvious at that particular time that he was responsible. We didn't get the conviction, which is what should have happened. And it was as a result of not getting that conviction that the horrible events of February 1990 were allowed to occur. A spokesperson for the Fellows family, Lorna Heffron, told reporters Russell Bishop was, quote, a monster, a predatory paedophile and evil personified. Russell Bishop remains behind bars where he belongs. 
The guilty verdict doesn't bring Nicola and Karen back, but we know that other children are now safe from the hands of Russell Bishop. Lee, Karen Hadaway's father, and Jonathan, Nicola Fellow's brother, would never see justice. Lee Hadaway died, many have said, from a broken heart in 1998. Before his heart attack, he was addicted to drugs and became homeless for a time. Jonathan Fellows died in a homeless shelter during September 2018. Benzodiazepines, heroin and morphine were found in his system. Cans of beer surrounded his bed and a post-mortem would later rule that he died from an alcohol and drugs overdose and cirrhosis of the liver. While Jonathan had undergone treatment for PTSD, he struggled to come to terms with his sister's death and would often drink to excess. His problem started when Russell Bishop was acquitted of his sister's murder in 1987. His mother Susan spoke about the loss of both her son and her second husband before the retrial. And, that, and it's done a lot of things to us, you know, like me and Barry split up and that. And um, he was the love of my life, but he just went. <laughs> And I didn't have no one like, to comfort me in that when I was lonely. And now it's just hard, you know what I mean? Because I go home now and there's no one there for me because I lost my husband two years ago. And then in September I lost my son. And now just before the trial started, and he wanted to be here so much. But he couldn't. And that and he, he blames himself because he had a row with his sister on that last day that they were well, playing. On Tuesday, December 11th, 2018, Russell Bishop was sentenced. Part way through giving evidence, when confronted with letters of a sexual nature that he had written to a child, Bishop refused to continue and did not witness the rest of the trial. The judge, Mr Justice Sweeney's sentencing remarks to Russell Bishop read as follows. Yesterday, 31 years to the day after your acquittal for the same offences, you were convicted on now overwhelming evidence of the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway, both aged nine, in Wild Park in Brighton, on Thursday the 9th of October 1986. You were 20 years old at the time. You are now aged 52. I have no doubt that you were a predatory paedophile, that having seen Nicola and Karen playing near the entrance to the park at around 5.15pm on Thursday the 9th of October 1986, you remained in the area in case a chance arose to lure them into the woods in the park. That chance did arise at around 6.30, when you saw them not far from you outside the southern end of the park, that taking advantage of your previous dealings with their families and with them, and your local knowledge, you then lured them to a secluded den in the woods. 
but there entirely for your own pleasure. You subdued them, punching Nicola in the face and putting your hand over her nose and mouth in the process, and then in turn strangled and sexually assaulted each of them, and that the worst of the sexual assault was inflicted on Nicola, including part of it after her death because earlier that afternoon she had been rude to your then 16-year-old girlfriend. The terror that each girl must have suffered in their final moments is unimaginable. You then left their bodies where they were and walked home, dumping your Pinto sweatshirt en route to avoid anything incriminating on it being linked to you. Once you got home and also trying to avoid anything incriminating being found, you bathed and washed the remainder of your clothing. The following day, you pretended to take part as an innocent helper in the search for the girls, each minute of which must have increased the apprehension for their families. After the discovery of the bodies, you pretended that you would check their pulses so that you would have an excuse if anything linked to you was found on them. After your subsequent arrest, you falsely pretended that you were innocent. I am fortified in a number of those conclusions by the similarities between the murders of Nicola and Karen and the offences that you committed against a girl aged 7 in 1990, which clearly show you to be a violent paedophile who carried out another sexual attack on a prepubescent girl for the pleasure of doing so. You have been serving a sentence of life imprisonment for that offence since your conviction for it later that year. During this trial, you again falsely pretended that you were innocent and made the allegation which you were able in law to do, that Nicola's father Barry Fellows could have been the murderer instead. That will not add a day to your sentence, but it underlines that you have no remorse whatsoever for what you did. Indeed, I observe that Barry Fellows stood in the witness box and dealt with all the questions that were asked of him in cross-examination despite the understandable distress that it caused him. Whereas after your initial cross-examination by the prosecution had exposed you as a paedophile and a liar, you have refused to answer any more questions and have subsequently refused to attend court at all, or seen today to attend via video link. Hence I am sentencing you in your absence. The victim personal statements of Susan Eisman, Nicola's mother, Barry Fellows, Nicola's father, and Michelle Johnson, Karen's mother, speak with great dignity and force of the extent of the loss suffered by each of their families and of the suffering that they have endured over so many years. The court pays humble tribute to them for their fortitude and determination to see justice done. The penalty for murder is fixed by law and thus I must and do impose concurrent terms of life imprisonment on each count. I must also fix the minimum term that you must serve, from today, before the parole board consider your release. The minimum term is intended to reflect the seriousness of your offences. Because you were aged 20 at the time of the offences, a whole life order could not be imposed. However, the murder of a single child involving, as in your case, sexual motivation, is an offence of exceptionally high seriousness, which, as a 20-year-old, attracts today a starting point of 30 years. However, you have committed two such murders, 
which would require a substantial uplift from that starting point. It is not disputed that the offences would also be aggravated in my view seriously by the offences that you committed against the seven-year-old girl. In addition, there was an element of premeditation in the murders of Nicola and Karen. There are no mitigating features. Given that your offences are such serious ones of their type, involving two child murders, each of which was sexually motivated, each of which involved a degree of premeditation, and each of which was substantially aggravated by your offences in relation to the seven-year-old girl, I have concluded with your age in mind that the minimum term that would have been notified by the Secretary of State in 1986 would have been one of 36 years. Accordingly, that is the minimum term that I impose on each count. The earliest Russell Bishop can be released is in 2054. He will likely die behind bars. The week following the trial, Marion Stevenson was interviewed by a journalist for the Sun newspaper about the man she said she was infatuated with. On one occasion, a few weeks before the murders, Bishop was driving Marion to Devil's Dyke, the same spot where he tried to kill a seven-year-old girl. Marion could hear noises coming from the back of the car, when she realised that Nicola and Karen had been hiding in the footwell of the back seats. Marion could not tell if the girls were just there as a joke, or if Bishop had tempted them to get in the car. Marion went on to say in the interview, I am just so, so sorry that I didn't see him for the predator he is, and I couldn't keep those little girls safe. I should have seen the signs. He was always jealous of me playing with the girls and of how much I love them. I pray that wasn't a reason he targeted them. So where are we now? The case of the babes in the wood cast a long shadow taking over three decades for those affected to receive the justice they so richly deserved. Before the second trial, when the families were not sure whether Russell Bishop would face charges or not, Michelle Karen's mother was interviewed for an article in The Guardian. She said, You get up in the morning and you're tired because you haven't slept, but you still have to be that person you've always been. You sort the children out and you get them off to school. You come back and you do your bits and pieces. You're walking around and you've just got this constant ache. It just never goes away because someone is missing. Speaking about Karen, Michelle went on to say, It seems only yesterday that she's still only nine. In the evening... There's a little part of you still expecting her to come in, and she doesn't. There's a bit of laughter you hear, and you still think it's them. (laughs) 
a banner was erected in Wild Park soon after the verdict at the Old Bailey. It read, Nicola and Karen, 32 years. Finally, we have justice for you. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Information on this episode can be found in the show notes, or on our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.